and welcome to Everything Acting Podcast. We come to you from the capital of the world, New York City. My name is Darby Worley. And I'm Roz Coleman. Join us as we inform, inspire, and demystify the actor's journey. Hi, Roz. How are you? I'm excellent. How are you, Darby? I'm excellent as well. I just came off a like 10-day vacation with my family up in um, northern Minnesota where, oh, I know, one other thing I want to talk about. I, have you been, I know you don't watch TV. <laughs> So all of our listeners need to be watching Orphan Black. Orphan Black is about um, a bunch of clones. And Tatiana Maslany plays, so far I think that we're up to like nine or ten of these characters. And they are all so richly drawn and so different. And it's, I mean, it's absolutely mind-boggling. So that's an assignment for you, Roz. And for (laughs) ma'am. And all of our listeners, I mean, I just, I just felt like schooled watching this woman work. She's absolutely amazing. So anyway, that's, that's part of what I did. I got caught up on a lot of um, good television. I hung out with my family. I did not think about fitness or acting or any of that stuff for, um, you know, about a week and a half. So I'm feeling good. How's your summer going? It's going amazing. I saw a wonderful play. Um, It was called Good Grief, written by Ngozi in a Anna Yawu, a Nigerian actress that I worked with years ago. And what was really good about it is it's a sexual coming of age about this Nigerian girl growing up in um, upstate New York. And she's growing up in this all-white neighborhood and her parents are from Nigeria. And she's, she goes away to college and she comes home and, and the cute boy in the neighborhood who she sort of grew up wrestling he starts calling her in the middle of the night and they have this really close relationship and, and um, they start making out and stuff. And she's a virgin, even though she's a college girl, she's kind of a late bloomer. And he suddenly dies in a car accident. And it's about her mourning process. And it's so good. It was so good. And this is the kind of story that probably normally would have been told as a one person show. It's a very, very personal play, but she did it as a whole world. And all the characters were so specifically drawn and so wonderful that um, this play was like a huge hit. Mm. And I just, I, I just had to like write a blog post about it. I really hope it goes on. It was is it still, so, is it still running? Cause I haven't heard of this. It was at um, Intar and I think this was like the first um, production of it, but this was like, a, you know, sort of an advanced workshop. So mm-hmm. I don't think it's had a full run yet. So I'm really hoping that it goes on. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that's a, that's a good um, segue into our introduction of our guest, Michael Barakiba, who is a big fancy director, but he also has a, he has also published his first young adult novel, which is about, which is kind of a gay coming of age slash coming out story. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of similar to um, the beginning of the play that you just saw. Mm-hmm. Michael is utterly delightful and I can't wait for you guys to hear that interview but first we're going to take our weekly kind of um you know question of the week question of the podcast I guess we should say since we don't do one of these every week (laughs) but so I'm curious Roz what you think about the fact that there are still actors in Hollywood both young and old who are still deeply in the closet and afraid to come out what do you think that's all about aren't we past that well I think it's kind of I think it's always sad when someone feels like they have to hide who they really are. It always makes me die a little bit inside, Mm. you know? And um, you would think that we would be past that, but you would be surprised at how conservative old Hollywood, traditional Hollywood can be um, in terms of like the, the um, big picture. Every time I'm in Los Angeles, I always find it, surprising the comments that I hear and the way that people talk and the way that people separate and segregate themselves. I always find it shocking Mm. in terms of, you know, what opportunities are are available for what people. It's kind of shocking to me. But to me, the thing that always breaks, breaks things down, there's always that brave person who goes forward, who's super talented, who breaks all the rules and shuts it down. So I think as far as like older Hollywood and someone being out of the closet, there's sort of like hasn't been that breakthrough person that's going to shut that down, shut that conversation down. 
Mm-hmm. I feel like in the, I don't know, maybe in the over 50 range, mm. over 50 masculine white male range. Yeah. Tom Cruise, we're talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I kind of like that. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, I do know what you mean. And I also, I was just going to, I had a thought and I kind of lost it. Um, uh, I think it's different in New York too, because yeah. we, so many of us come from the theater where it's not, it's not a big deal to be out in any way, shape or form. We live all over each other. We are right on top of each other. And it's big difference in Los Angeles because everybody is very separated. So we're not as used to each other. Whereas, you know, we're eating in each other's houses. We're all over each other. So we're very accepting of everybody here in New York. In LA, LA, it's such an image machine kind of um, experience for actors out there, right? Mm -hmm. Like like you've got the publicity team and you've got the image consultants and all that stuff. And it's, it's really more about making yourself into a brand as opposed to out here. I feel like it's more about finding your truth as an actor and what you can bring to the table. It's very hidden. What's what what's really going on with you is really you hide that mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. I find it. And um sadly when you have struggles or whatever the truth of it is, you don't share that. You mm-hmm. really keep this mask on that you're doing fabulous, that you're rich and that you're you're just trucking along, you're fit and nothing bothers you. So that that's your public persona. Mm-hmm. And you don't you don't try to show any chinks in your armor. Yeah. Well, well, I my, know what my, I know what my other question was. So 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 keeping that in mind, how yeah. do you feel about the um the activity of outing people of say a star magazine or a TMZ outing a celebrity against their will. I always think that it's, it's wrong to um, force to out people. Now rumors are rumors. And I think rumors are fine (laughs) because (laughs) what's wrong with the little rumor? (laughs) Well, here's what I think. I think that, I think that um, I, d- I don't think it should be anybody's decision to out somebody else. I think that should be a, the person who is the topic of conversation should be the one to do the outing. However, I do think that they should be shamed aggressively in blind items <laughs> so that so that they do come out. And here's why. Here's why celebrities need to be out so that young kids have role models and know that it's okay to be out as well. That's why I think that, I think everybody should be out. I mean, obviously, I I think everybody should be out as a matter of course. But those people who are famous and resisting and still hiding, I, that makes me really, um, it makes me sad for them, but it makes me more angry for all the lives that they could be touching if they were willing to be brave and take that risk and come out and prove that gay men, gay women can play straight people. We're actors, vice versa. Did you hear about this guy on True Blood? Mm-mm. Okay, there's an actor on True Blood and he what, he plays, I can't remember what his name is. He's a, kind of a minor vampire on True Blood. And he supposedly left his role because his his character was going to get involved in a gay like love triangle next season, this season, this current last season. And he didn't feel comfortable with that. And so he quit. And I'm like, dude, that's not cool. You're an actor. You know, now who knows if that's really the reason, but that's the rumor. And I'm like, that guy, that's karma, dude. That's going to come around to bite you in the ass sooner or later. You know, I I think like what's happening on Modern Family and the fact that one of those actors is straight, right, is amazing. Mm -hmm. I watch, I do watch that show, Darby. Okay. That show is freaking amazing. That guy is so convincing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it also proves that, you know, gay people come in all shapes and sizes and mannerisms, and you really can't tell from the outside if someone is gay or straight or bi or whatever. You can't. And um, my friend um, Ray, Ray Ford just got a part. Oh, God, I'm not going to remember his show. But um, he's gay and he got a part on a, uh, a television series. I'm so excited for him. And he's playing um, extra gay. <laughs> he plays like, you know, extra gay. <laughs> and I was wondering, I, I got to talk to him. I'm like, I wonder if um, if he feels like, oh, I should be more macho or like if, if he has any feelings about that wait he, he he himself ray is gay or straight he's gay he's gay but they want him to go big go big gay he's going big gay okay <laughs> he's, he go, go big or go home 
Oh, that's you know, I love Ray and I know it's like, you know, it's so happy to have a a steady gig. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I saw just a teeny bit of it. Maybe I just saw over the top moment, but sometimes I wonder if, um, you know, because sometimes people are like really in their pocket Mm -hmm. and then, um, and then sometimes they're like, I don't know, that's just not his really where he resonates totally, Mm -hmm. but Hey, I'm happy for him. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so, and he's obviously out because you just said he's out. Oh, yeah, he's, no, he's been out the whole time. A lot so of plays, my, has he gotten um, work playing straight characters too? Oh, some, some. Mm-hmm. But um, the first movie he did, he played a gay character. A lot of my younger actors coming out of school um, are already out. A lot of my people coming out of NYU and Purchase and all that stuff—they're already out. They never even—they're never in. Of course. Yeah. This is obviously, this is all going to change because, because kids are coming out now when they're like five. Yeah. Um, All right, cool. Well, I think that's a, unless you have anything else to add on that. I just think that it, the cost of not being yourself to an artist, we're very sensitive people is too high. Mm. I think it's, in my opinion, you know, I'm a Whitney Houston freak. I think it's what killed Whitney. I think it kills a lot of people because we, we will, will try to medicate or whatever. I think you have to be who you are and be in your truth. I love oh, you. Roz is getting a kiss from her husband. Bye. <laughs> Hi, Craig. Hi, honey. Bye. Have a good day. Um, <laughs> yes, I absolutely, absolutely agree with that. I, I admire young people nowadays. I just look at them, you know, in my classes and stuff. And they are, like, I saw them, they, my NYU students did the play The Wild Party. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't seen that play. That play is so fantastic. It's really about um, artists and the artist's life and the artist's struggle. And it's got all this sex and all gay people and all the, and everything. It's got everything. It's got mm. And um, it's got this sort of cost of, of what it takes to be an artist over time. And what if you don't make it? And what if you go broke? And, you know, what is that addiction to, to, um, to keeping performing? And it's all about that stuff. Mm-hmm. And they played it to the hilt. They had nudity. They were topless. They were everything. And they're just getting out of college. And I just felt like they were so brave. So mm-hmm. I feel like people... Like, as we go forward, we're, it's just going to be better. I feel like the older generation is where the issues are. Yeah, and the thing is, those, those really conservative old well, guys in Hollywood, they're going to be dying off at any moment, you know? So, yeah. Um, all right, cool. So I think that's um, a good moment to, to transition into our interview. But first, guys out there in um, EAP land, if you have thoughts on coming out as a gay, bi, et cetera, <laughs> Um, actor or actress, please let us know what you think about that at feedback at everythingactingpodcast.com or you can share your stories on our Facebook page. Um, If you just do a little search for Everything Acting Podcast in Facebook, you'll find it. Share your stories out there. But... um, or you can share your stories at our Facebook page. If you just do a little search in Facebook for Everything Acting Podcast, you'll find us and we'd love to hear from you. And now here's my interview with Michael Barakiba. <laughs> Welcome back. You're listening to Everything Acting Podcast. My name is Darby Worley, and joining me now is director, author, um, multiple hyphenate, <laughs> talented um, genius, Michael Barakiva. Barakiva, did I say it right? Yeah, you totally said it right. It's great to be here, Darby. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Welcome to the show. Thanks for agreeing to do this. Um, so we always kind of like to start at the beginning when we um, have guests on the show. So talk about how you became an artist. Sure, sure. Um, well, I love that question because it's like, I think I was a director for a long time before I was an artist, and I think those oh. are two very different things. Interesting. So, so I guess I'll start with how I started directing plays, and then what I think being an artist means and the ongoing evolution of that process for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I did. I was in the chorus of Oliver when I was in sixth grade. I had the first solo as one of the orphan boys. I sang it terribly off key. I was always a um, like my acting sort of ranged. I think from like 
um, painful to self-conscious, depending on the pace that I was in. And then when I was a senior in high school, I was the president of the drama club and we had an opportunity to direct a play and I directed Self-Torture and Strenuous Exercise by Harry Kondolian, who was mm. a wonderful playwright who passed away in the 80s um, from AIDS-related uh, complications. Mm. And when I got to college, I didn't, um, let's see, I didn't really know what I was going to major in. I ended up majoring in English and Drama, and I was involved in both departments, but a lot of my strongest memories are from the student theater group, um, where I just directed plays all the time. They would accept my proposals, and I would direct plays to them. They would reject my proposals, and I would do my own fundraising and direct plays in lecture halls or... And um, I did Veronica's Room, this great melodrama thriller by Ira Levin in a Victorian parlor, sort of as a site-specific piece. Mm. And I was just always, I was directing, I wasn't thinking about it. I was just directing all the time. And sort of a new semester would roll around, and the question wouldn't be, oh, I wonder if I'm going to direct something or not. It would be, how many plays am I going to direct this semester, and who's going to be crazy enough to let me do them? And then in my senior year, I applied to Yale and to Juilliard's directing program, and I was accepted into Juilliard's directing program. And so I moved to New York, and I went straight into graduate school. And I spent three years in that program, which is now defunct, and I think my 50-minute production of Wojtek has a lot to do with that. <laughs> um, and then I got out of Juilliard, and I had, when I was in school, and I was still in grad school, I had the, um, the pleasure of assisting Mark Brokaw, who lives right around the corner from here, actually. Really? Yep. Oh. And, um, and I assisted him on a production of Comedy of Errors at Hartford Stage, and then... On opening night, he said, um, why don't we meet before the show? And I thought he was going to sort of like read me out for being a bad AD because I'm not, I was not a great assistant director. I think ironically now, I'm quite a, I would be quite a good assistant director <laughs> at this point in my life. But at the time, I had not mastered any of the stillness or calm yeah. that a good AD needs. And, uh, but he said, you know, I'm directing this Wendy Wasserstein play at Lincoln Center, and I'd like you to assist me on it. And I was like very honored to do that. And so... I assisted Mark a few months later at Lincoln Center, and I met Wendy Wasserstein, and then for the rest of my 20s, I would work as Wendy's typist, which was a funny, weird job that she made up for me. Oh, great. I'm so glad. <laughs> yeah. You know, they're doing Heidi Chronicles on Broadway next year. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, okay. Pam Kinnon is directing. And, um, and then I would, you know, the Wendy job was basically my primary source of income, and around that I would assist other directors, I would direct to colleges or universities. What does that job mean, being a typist? Did she t dictate to you, or how did that work? Yeah, well, Wendy was losing her sight at the time, although she wasn't talking about that. She didn't talk about her illness to anybody, although those of us who worked for her knew. I mean, mm -hmm. we could tell. But she didn't talk about it, so we didn't really talk about it. And she would dictate, and I would type, and then I would read back to her what she had said, written, and then she would edit. Or sometimes she would, like, um, like when I get a fellowship and go out of town and the money was really poor, she would write these longhand pages out in this crazy scrawl that after months I learned how to decipher, and then I would type the pages up and then email them to her, and then she would put corrections on them and send them back out to me. So, wow. it was, you know... What it's, an education. Oh, my God, yeah. And I, and I think... It's impossible, really, for me to imagine having become a writer without those years watching her write. Mm. Because at the time, I was really conscious of what I was learning about theater and what I was learning about directing. But I didn't, it didn't really occur to me that I was also learning about how to write, not, like, not just how to make sentences, but actually like a writer's schedule. Like the kind of discipline and Wendy and I would meet we'd meet for four hours and then we'd sort of like catch up or have lunch for 45 minutes and then we would like get to work and then we would work you know mm -hmm. and she she I mean she was she was incredibly disciplined um and so so there was like all of my directing stuff that was happening at the time and in fact my first professional production were these two one acts that Wendy wrote for me to direct that we did in DC together which was this like, great gift that she gave me, and one of them became her last full-length play, Third. Mm. And, um, and then Wendy passed away right after I turned 30, and I think that was like, you know, it was like the late Saturn's return is how I sort of think about mm. it. I got dumped by my boyfriend and kicked out of his apartment, and my appendix burst, and Wendy died, and I, I lost my voice for a few weeks. I don't know, it was really, oh. yeah, it was really intense. Yeah. And, uh, 
And then, and I didn't really know how I was going to support myself because the Wendy job had just sort of taken care of that. And sort of miraculously, like a directing job came through and then another directing job came through and, you know, you sort of eke out a living. Mm -hmm. So, so I guess a lot of my 20s were spent trying to figure out, you know, like, what, like how to direct a play. And it's, it's, directing a play is such a weird, hard, bizarre thing to do. And I think, um, unlike a lot of directors and unlike something that the industry wants directors to do, I'm not especially interested in learning how to direct a type of play. I'm really interested in learning how to direct every kind of play. Mm -hmm. And so every time I take a project, I try to have it be as different from the project before that I've That's taken. what I noticed when I was looking at your website. I was like, he does <laughs> musicals and Shakespeare. And like, oh, oh yeah, yeah. All of it. I just had, a, I just had a, an interview to be an associate director of a Broadway play, and the director was the same way. He's like, you have like these little plays, you have big plays, you're a little all over the place, but I like that, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, you know, like one of the theories is that, oh, you specialize, you're the kind of director who does five-person realistic new unit set plays, and then you become really good at that. But I sort of hate that theory. And I find that like doing those little plays really helps me do big musicals because I become better at directing the little scenes in those big musicals. Mm -hmm. And then doing those big musicals helps me do Shakespeare because so much of those big musicals is figuring out how to get people on and off stage. And of course, <laughs> there's a musicality to the iambic pentameter that is so similar to a musical's musicality. Mm -hmm. So... So, I, so a lot of it was just trying to figure out craft. And then I think sometime in my 30s, as a director, I started figuring out, like, oh, these are the kind of plays that I want to do. These are the things that interest me. I'm half Israeli and half Armenian. So there's obviously the phenomenon of genocide is incredibly um, disturbing and interesting to me, but also uh, its repercussions and the idea of memory and legacy. So there's sort of these big abstract thematic things that started interesting me. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, shortly after Wendy passed away, but in my mind, not, there was, I, I didn't sort of trace the causality of it until much later, I started, I, I wouldn't quite say writing, but I would say I was adapting. So I would take, you know, I got hired to direct a play and the budget was really small and it was for us for this little school in New York studio. And they said, well, what can we do to make this interesting to you? And I was like, oh, well, let me write the play. And then I realized I had no idea how to write a play. So I called two friends of mine who are writers. One is a novelist and one is a real playwright. I said, oh, let's all write a play together. And none of us lived in the same city. And we took a bunch of Greek myths and we just sort of adapted them and sent them back and forth to each other. And, um, and around the same time, my, uh, my ex-girlfriend's best friend from Vassar, who was an edited, editor at Penguin at the time, said, oh, you should write me a gay young adult novel. That genre is really up and coming. And so we worked on it for two years and we couldn't sell it to Penguin and I thought well this is sort of a failed experiment but you know a fun failed experiment as failed experiments go and then the, this editor Joy Peskin moved to Macmillan and she got back in touch with me and she said you know I um there are a few projects that I always felt like deserved more than they got and your book was one of them and do you want to work on it more and so I um I looked at the manuscript that I, I hadn't looked at it in three or four years now, and it was pretty terrible. Like, the writing was terrible, the sentences were, they were not good sentences, but the characters were interesting and the structure was sort of interesting. How autobiographical is it? Well, let's see. The character <laughs> is Armenian, and I'm half mm -hmm. Armenian. So, mm -hmm. let's say half autobiographical. Okay. Um, he comes out when he's 14. I didn't come out until I was 21. So, that is, you know, a lot of it sort of starts with this fantasy of, like, what would have what would have needed to transpire for me to have come out at 14 mm -hmm. and a really hot skater guy was sort of the answer that comes out of it. Um, I think about that. I think about this is off topic a little bit, but I think please. about that a lot for, for young gay kids now. It's just so much better. Like I, yeah, I, yeah. you know, I, I have all these um, gay guys who come to my classes at Equinox and they're all different ages. And so I'm like when pride comes around, I'm like, you boys just don't know. You don't know what it used to be like. You yeah, better yeah. be grateful for how your life is so much better. I know it's still hard, but it's <laughs> so much better now. And a lot of them have just watched, have watched the normal heart for the first time. Oh my God. Yes. Of course. You know, because they, and they, they're like, wow, I had no idea you know, yeah, what yeah. it was like. I so, think about like the architecture of gay bars all the time. Like when I mm -hmm. got to New York, the gay bars were always in the basement. Yeah. And then, like, I was here for a year, and, like, in 1998, there was a bar in Midtown that opened up with big glass walls on the ground floor. And I thought, oh, nobody cares anymore. Mm. You know, you yeah. can be seen in here. Yeah, 
Yeah. So anyway, so that's yeah. so so you're. I just started the book. I've only I've only, I'm only up to the point where um, he's he's been beaten up, but he. So, oh God, it's so, <laughs> so sad. It's so no. sad. Um, I didn't get beaten up a lot yeah. as a kid because I had a. You jockey. did or did not? I did not because okay. I had a jockey older brother. But okay. there was like this really clear sense that if he were not in the picture, like my face <laughs> would be on the floor a lot. <laughs> So, um, but but is it so? Where what what's the time period? I, I, I haven't figured, sussed out what year this is. Supposed well, you to be know, it's set it's set contemporary ish. Yeah. But one of the things that I didn't want to do was because every time I tried to write cell phones and computers, mm. it felt really inauthentic for some reason. Okay. So although it's set in a sort of like you know contemporary universe, mm-hmm. all of the all of the tech doesn't exist in it. Okay. And there's something sort of nostalgic I think about yeah. it. Yeah. And you asked, you know, about the uh, like the autobiographicalness mm-hmm. of it is that, and it's it's set in suburban New Jersey, which is where I grew up, and that is deeply autobiographical. Okay. Um, the sense that you're 50 miles from New York and you're a universe away. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to get to the parts where they go on dates in New York City because I, I fantasize about that what it, what it would have been like to grow up here. Oh, I know. As a child and um, a young adult, I didn't come here until I was three. Four, so for the first time. Well, I I had visited, but I but I didn't move here. Yeah, yeah. Before, and I look at these kids walking around the street. I'm like, man, they just seem so cool. I know what you mean. <laughs> when, when, like when, when I was at Vassar, and like all the um, like the people who wanted to be freshman rep got up and talked about their experience. You know, it was two weeks into our freshman year, and I remember running for the position and saying, you know, I've done dinner theater and I've done community theater, and the kids from New York were like, I've done three Law & Order episodes, and I just felt so like, I've been through rehab, I just felt so intimidated by their experience. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, so let's talk about um, young actor people, since that's who, is it, who are listening to the show. Yeah. Um, when you talk about your casting process, do you use the same person over and over as a casting director? Or do you do it yourself? How do you do it? Well, with a casting director, usually the theater will have a casting director that they work with. I've worked at Syracuse Stage a bunch, and Harriet Bass has done my casting there, and I just mm-hmm. love her. And Harriet and I have like this really interesting ongoing dialogue in our casting sessions, which is that I really like working with people that I've worked with before. Mm-hmm. You look at the history of theater, and... Um, you know, there's a Shakespeare working ensemble, Moliere working ensemble, and I think there's something that happens in that that's really powerful, a history that allows, especially as regional theaters shave weeks off of rehearsal processes, it used to be a five-week process, and now it's sort of a four-week process. And, um, and Harriet respects that, and at the same time says, my job is to get you to cast people you've never mm-hmm. seen before and you've never worked with before. So she really champions. I say, oh, you know, I've worked with this person, I know that they can do the do this job and she says well yeah but they didn't come in here and they didn't show me that and this person did show me that and I know they can do it too and it's good for you to get out of your comfort zone so mm-hmm. she and I ha- have a really fun dialogue in that way mm-hmm. so do you are you involved how early on in the process do you actually see the actor or meet the actor um, explain for listeners what, what the regional theater casting process oh, is oh yeah like. sure so you know, with with regional theater, and a lot of it depends on what type of time of the year it is because mm-hmm. you know if it's pilot season um, you tend to cast a little bit later because it's so easy to lose people last minute. Mm. And you want to do it in a, I guess like usually in a three-month window before the first rehearsal because if you do it earlier, people are going to get higher lord jobs or New York jobs and you're going to mm-hmm. lose them and have to recast anyway. And if you do it too soon, people are going to get booked out. Mm-hmm. So usually two to three months before, um, I'll send Harriet a list, which is a list of actors that I've worked with or actors that I haven't worked with that I think would be good for the roles. Mm-hmm. And then she'll add an enormous amount from you know her formidable pool, for example, uh, actors that she has worked with, actors whose work she has seen. And then we get a list of availabilities mm-hmm. of people who will come in. And, you know, there, there are a lot of, you know, um, I'm trying to figure out how to say this delicately, but I don't really know how, so I'm just going to Let's say, just say it. it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> great, yeah. You know, that like some people don't want to leave New York. And there's this yeah. actress who I love, who said, well, I'll work with you in Syracuse in the spring, but I'm not going to work there in the winter when it's really cold and there is a foot and a half of snow on the ground. Like, I'm just not going to do that to myself. And I remember when I was younger thinking those things sounded so foolish, but now that I'm older and I have a husband and leaving New York, like, it takes a toll on the relationship and, Mm -hmm. you know, and then you're out of town and you miss a reading that you could have directed and there's a cost to going out of town and that Mm -hmm. cost is better when there isn't two feet of snow, (laughs) you know? (laughs) 
So I, so I totally get that, you know? Yeah. And then also there are actors whose agents are just not going to let them leave New York. And then you think, mm-hmm. well, is there a way to entice this actor if you think they're really right for the role? Is it a, a, um, I'm, I'm really interested in, especially if I work with actors, when working with actors that I've worked with before, finding things that is not the usual fit for them. And I find that actors are so responsive and so eager for that opportunity that it might get them to leave New York at a time when they wouldn't otherwise. Yeah, for sure, for yeah. sure. And so then Harry and I will do a day or two of auditions depending on the amount Are of... Are you there in this room right yeah. away? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. For, depending on the amount of roles, and then we'll usually do a day of callbacks, and Tim Bond, the artistic director, who is an amazing guy and who, uh, who's got great taste in material and in actors, will come to the callbacks. And then the three of us sort of sit, and it's, you know, often it's really clear who has earned the role, and there isn't even a discussion about mm. it. Like somebody has just walked in and been so persuasive mm-hmm. in their audition and then in their ability to reproduce those choices in the callback and to bring new choices to new material that there isn't much of a conversation. And then, and then sometimes there is. And then I always vet. So I'll look at the actor's resume and I will call any director that I know on that resume and I'll say, what was it like to work with this person? Okay. And there is this really interesting unspoken code among directors. You know, like, I could call the artistic director of the theater, whom I know or don't know, and never get a call back from them if I'm trying to pitch a project or something. But if I call and ask for a recommendation on an actor, and they know these decisions are made within a 24-hour window, they call back and they leave you nice, long, frank messages about what the experience of working with that actor is. And it's, it's this incredible thing that directors do for each other, and it's one of the things that made me start working so much kinder as a director because I'm sure artistic directors Mm -hmm. do that to each other all the time with directors that they want to hire and I think to myself how many jobs have I lost because I behaved like an asshole when I was you know (laughs) too young to know better yeah yeah that's interesting um so talk about good auditions versus not so good auditions great great great. um what do you look for what what kind of um things do actors do that get you excited about working with them and what kind of things do actors do that make you go "Mm -hmm." well Auditions used to be really exhausting for me. And I know that like, it's sort of an obnoxious thing to say because all I had to do is sit behind a table and other people were doing all of the work. But then I realized that's actually why they were exhausting, is that when there's no exchange of energy, the experience becomes really boring for me. Mm-hmm. And so more and more, I try to think of auditions as like five-minute rehearsals back-to-back. Mm. So an actor comes in and... And we, you know, they do the material and then I think, well, what would you do if you were in a rehearsal? I'd be like, oh, that was great. Okay, let's try it like this. Or I really try to see what the actor is bringing to the role that might be a surprise mm-hmm. for me. I, um, you know, I'm, I'm Juilliard trained, so in the most boring of ways, I like to hear the words and I like to hear all of the words and I like to hear them well, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I think to myself, if an actor can't communicate the words to me in a little rehearsal room, how are they going to do it in a 600 or 700 seat theater? And... And there's, um, there's a playfulness to a rehearsal that I look for in an actor's audition. If they can work really hard and prepare something and bring it in and then take it in a totally different direction, or just even take a little adjustment within the thing itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing is that I'm, again, and I don't, I, I'm not speaking for all directors at all here, but a finished product feels deeply disingenuous to me in an audition mm-hmm. because... The only way to get to a real finished product is, you know, by working on something for weeks. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I just did this Blythe Spirit and an incredibly talented actress whom I would be very, uh, you know, honored to be in a rehearsal room with came in to do a Madame Arcati, but it was opening night. Like, she didn't need yeah. to go through a rehearsal process. I had nothing to offer her. Yeah. Uh, maybe she had played the part before, you know, that sometimes happens. And maybe that would be very appealing to another director who would say, okay, well, I've got this in the bag. Now I can work on everything else. But to me, I just sort of felt like, oh, you don't need to do this part. Yeah. I love that you said that because I always resist the temptation to memorize sides yes, yes. or memorize the script when I go in. I, I, have a, I memorize very quickly, and so I have to turn that off. Yes. But I think that that really helps me stay in a place where I can be guided and directed and changed. Totally. Right? Because there's something about memorizing the stuff that it, it's not, you don't just memorize the words. You're memorizing other yes. things with it. And mm-hmm. keeping it like this allows, it, allows you to be fresher or in the yeah. moment more. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad. I love hearing, I love hearing yeah. you say that. Yeah. And now, now that they're like these five-minute rehearsals, I, I know they're much more fun for me, and I know that they're much more fun for the actor. Like, I can just mm-hmm. tell the experience is, um, 
you know, there's like a cycling of energy happening. I, and I remember um, Garland Wright, who was one of my mentors at Juilliard, um, the f former artistic director of the Guthrie, who passed away in 1998. He, um, my friends who auditioned for him always said it was an honor to audition for him. And I didn't know what that meant, and he died before I could ask him, which is one of the many things that I'm angry about with him. But I thought, oh, that's the experience I want to create for the actor, you know? Mm -hmm. Because so many of my friends are actors, and I can't imagine what that must... You know, if I interview for a job and I don't get it, I feel like I'm depressed for weeks. <laughs> like, you know, like, I could be, like, barely crawl... <laughs> Sorry, I'm spitting all over you. <laughs> I could barely crawl my way out of that, like, pit of despair. Yeah. So, so I feel like all I can do is make the experience as enjoyable and authentic as, as possible. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, that shows me what an actor is like to work with. Because here's the other thing that's really important, okay? Especially in regional theater, which is what I've been directing a lot of lately. As a director... I spend one week in the theater, mm. and then maybe I'll come up to see closing. But I spend four weeks in the rehearsal room. So, so like, you know, like more and more, I'm casting, of course I'm going to cast brilliant actors who are great for the part and who, you know, casting is a huge part of storytelling. And so, mm. obviously, I'm going to find actors that are going to tell the story that I want to tell. But... I'm spending all of my time with you in rehearsal, so you better be fun in rehearsal, you know? <laughs> you better be yeah. creative and weird and experimental and open and challenging and all of those things because I'm not going to see the run. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. Um, so let's go back to talking about, about your writing. I'm, I'm, we're all over the map here, but yeah, that's Yeah, okay. great. It's my favorite. Um, so, so we always, as I told you before we started recording, we're always encouraging actors to write and to create their own work. So for you making the, um, the leap to, to start writing, like how did, you, how did you know you'd be good at it? How did you... Like, what, I didn't what? know I'd be good yeah. at it, and I still don't know that I am, <laughs> which is a wonderful, scary place to be. Mm -hmm. Because... There are, there are a few things that I love about writing. One of them is that I don't know how to do it. And I haven't trained in it. And, you know, with directing, I've been doing it for 15 years professionally, plus three years of graduate school. So mm -hmm. if I don't know how to, something about directing, like, yeah. it would be a very sad comment on my life. <laughs> but with writing, I don't know how to do it. And, mm -hmm. and although that makes the process of it much more difficult... It reminds me of being a young director and the thrill and the fear that I felt of not knowing how to do something and how good that is for the artist. And at the same time, I think it frees me from doing things the way they should be done, which is not always the best way for them to be done. Yeah. So there's sort of that over there. But I think more fundamentally, the answer to the question that you're asking is, um, is this. Is, this is, and this is like a new theory of mine. It's not entirely flushed out. But... I start thinking about, when I directed a college or a university, I just did a production of Spring Awakening at Syracuse with the kids mm, up there. I love that job. Oh, it was, yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm not directing at colleges a lot, but mm -hmm. it's like, if I'm going to do a show at a university, that's really a show that I want to do, because yeah. the youth, those people's youth, that, that, is, that made the show very beautiful, and, and their talent, of course. Um, but I think, like, why, why did most of us go into theater? And I think most of us went into theater like we were in high school or we were in college and we found people who were like us, who were like a little off, who were not doing sports. Mm -hmm. And we acted and maybe we wrote and directed also and we helped build the set and we put up the posters. Like we were theater people, mm -hmm. which is like very different than being an actor or a director. You know, the profession of director has only existed since the mid-19th century. So mm -hmm. the profession is less than 200 years old. Mm -hmm. Um... And so there's something about theater people do anything to put the play on. And that is what I think the heart of most of our love for theater is. And then on the flip side, you see like the 20th century is in, as a century of um, specialization. So the doctor becomes an ear, nose, and throat doctor, becomes like a nose doctor. And you become more and more specialized. It's like what I was talking about with directors, that there are kind of directors who only do one kind of play, and then people feel very comfortable hiring them to do that kind of play because they've already done it successfully 12 times. Mm -hmm. And so there's something about being a director or being an actor or being a writer, just being those things, that I think 
is not only contradictory to the heart of why we went into the profession, but I don't think it's how theater was made for a majority of the time in the history of the Western world that theater was made. I think it's only in the last two or three hundred years that because of unions and because of specialization and because of the way that we think of ourselves, we have isolated ourselves that way. And when you think about, you know, before the not-for-profit regional theater movement, actors were producers, you know, the companies were centered around the actors and they chose the material and they often would, times would direct the play and cast the plays. And so I... This is something that I hate about how theater is made in this country. I hate that about it. I think it's one of the re reasons that theater is dying and that it's not more successful. And so what I realized is that I became a director because I love telling stories. I think stories are a necessary part of the human experience. When you look at, you know, um, the cave drawings... Mm -hmm. from thousands of years ago, that is people telling stories. Mm -hmm. And I realized that, like, directing was a glove, and my desire to tell a story was a hand, and the hand was growing, and mm. the glove wasn't accommodating. Oh, that's a great <laughs> analogy. Yeah, so I'm <laughs> bursting at the seams <laughs> of my wool mitten. So, so, I started, writing for me was a lot like, it was like another kind of coming out, where it was like something that I was like, oh, I can't possibly be like this. Oh, like, and then I would start doing it, but still be in major denial. And one time I was with an artistic director, and she said, oh, we're doing this writer's residency, and I wondered if you wanted to be involved in it. And I said, oh, I'm a director. And she goes, really? Yeah, I go, yeah, yeah, I'm just a director. And she goes, well, what are you writing now? And I listed three or four things, and she goes, you sound a lot like a writer to me. <laughs> and so it requires, it's sort of, you need somebody else to see you in a different way and to tell you. My editor did that for me with this novel. This artistic director did it for me with this play. And so I think anybody who identifies themselves as just an actor or just a director is not, is not really an artist. Like, I think artists really tell full stories. And I think a writer who does not spend time in the theater... I mean, I just directed Blythe Spirit, and one of the great things about Noel Coward is that you could tell he grew up as a child actor because he understands the mechanics of a stage. That if you want somebody to start the next scene in a different costume, you can't have them exit at the end of the previous scene. Get them off 16 lines earlier so that they have time for the quick change, you know? <laughs> And yeah, that's part of the reason we do the show is we want actors to hear about all the other different like cogs in the big machine. Yes, yes. It's important. To, uh, if you work for a bank, you would know how, how, what everyone else is doing. Exactly. Right? And, the, and our business should be no different. And that's exactly right. Yeah. And it, it's only going to make you a better actor to understand and appreciate how those other things work. And there's no reason why you shouldn't go and do those things. You know, mm -hmm. stage managers are in the actors' union because mm -hmm. there was a time when actors would also ASM. And that, you know, understudies would also ASM. And so, so besides for just encouraging people to get out there and to do everything, I also really, the question I ask young actors, you know, if they, um, if they say, oh, let me take you out for a cup of coffee, is that I say, what kind of plays do you want to make? Because waiting for the phone to ring to get an audition for a part that you like feels like the least interesting part of acting for me. And unfortunately, it feels to me like the MO that actors are most encouraged to pursue and it's, and it's just... And then it, you always end up being the last person hired and like the, like you yeah. feel like the most disposable person. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Create your own material and that way you can never be replaced from it, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah, that's awesome. So talk about how you... Um, like the actual nuts and bolts of your writing process. Oh, like yeah, how did yeah. you talk yourself into, you know, making up the computer the first time or whatever? Well, it's... I think... This is sort of what I figured out is that... Like... Like, when I direct a play, there's, like, the initial staging, and then there's, like, the refining the staging, and then there's, like, sort of, like, the detail work, and then you sort of get into tech, and you put it all together, and you see how, you, how it fits. And that process has sort of mirrored itself for me as a writer. Mm. So, the first thing is, like, there's a blank screen. Well, actually, before that, there's the research, I guess, right? Okay. And as a director, I love the research. So, what I do is that I have index cards, and I have a blank wall in my office, in my apartment, and I just generate usually color-coded as many index cards as I can. So some of the index cards will be about the theme. Mm -hmm. So in One Man Guy, one of the themes was like, what is a coming out? What does it mean to come out? Because of course there are lots of things to come out about. Mm -hmm. So that would go on one, one theme, one, let's say a green index card. And then I would do all of my themes on green index cards. And then I would do story points on white index cards. So in whatever order I would see them, 
nonsensical things. I wouldn't know character names. I would just, you know, this is sort of a vomiting process. And anything is possible. This is sort of like text work when you're sitting around the table working on the play. And it's really thrilling because of the infinite possibilities. And then I do some cards about characters. What do I know about the characters? And then I would do questions that I have. I might do locations. Just sort of like vomit these cards forward. And that'll take maybe a few months of just percolation and then a few weeks of writing cards. And then I sort of look at all of the cards. I put them, I scotch tape them off the wall and I try to put them in order and say, oh, this project doesn't have room for this card. This theme is interesting, but it's not related. Oh, I can, these are, this one character is really two separate characters. These two characters are really one character. I try to look for causality within the story. I try to look for what are interesting reversals, you know, like in plays, a good play will have two or three great reversals. Mm -hmm. And so I try to figure those things out. And then I also really try to figure out the end because I think if you haven't figured out the end, you just sort of write yourself into a corner. Mm-hmm. And the end might be an image, it might be a reversal, it might be an epiphany, but just some idea about what the end is. When you pull a card off the wall, do you save it for another possible Sometimes, but then sometimes it's really satisfying to rip it up also <laughs> and to say, like, out there, spot. <laughs> um, and then this summer, two of the kids who worked with me on Spring Awakening have been interning with me. And they, I've, it's the first time that I've been generating cards with them. And I say, I'm just going to throw out ideas, and then they ask me questions, and that leads to more ideas. And that's been fun also mm-hmm. to incorporate them into the process. So then I have all of these cards, and then I sort of sit once a week for a while. I'll just reorganize the cards, I'll add cards, I'll change cards, I'll just sort of move them around. Until I sort of finally... I wish I'd brought a picture of this because I just started writing my second book and it's like the entire wall is full of cards and it, <laughs> there's a kind of, I could talk somebody through the book based on yeah, the cards. Yeah. So then that part of the process is really fun and chaotic and weird. And then there's actually writing, which is the blank screen is the scariest thing in the world. And Stephen Sondheim has these great books, you know, Finishing the Hat and Look, mm-hmm. I Made a Hat about how he writes his music writing process. And he really recommends writing after sleeping. Hmm. And a lot of writers that I know do that. The, the moment you wake up, you're sort of in the subconscious state. You're not conscious enough to edit yourself or to doubt yourself. And so every day, I started writing my new book last week. Every day for the last week, I wake up at 6.30 or 7, which is very early for me. <laughs> and I'll write for two hours. And I'll look at one of the cards, and the card will be a scene. It will say, um, Seth and Q go on their first date. Or it will say... Q comes out to his bro, friend from public high school. And I'll just write the scene. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes, um, especially when I'm writing books, I think because of my background in theater, I write the dialogue first. Mm. Like the dialogue comes much more easily to me than the narrative. Mm. So I write the dialogue first. I don't even know where the scenes are. Sometimes I write a character into the middle of the scene or not. And I'll do this, I'll do this, I don't know, for another week or two until I get what I think of act one. I have... I'm using a three-act structure. Mm-hmm. And I know where act one ends really clearly. I know what happens at the end of act one. So then I'll have that. And then that'll all be garbage. But it'll get you over the hurdle of the initial draft, which is the really scary thing. It's like with staging. The hardest thing in staging is the first day on your feet. When you're like, you've got the script in your hand, and you can you, and you, can you, you know, your rehearsal props, and you're in real space, and you're like, you know, you have no idea how the space works. It's all masked out. That's the hardest part for me. And then... Once there's something on the page, even if it's terrible, it gives me something to respond to. So I'll read the scene, I'll say, oh, this scene is horrible, but now I see what the the scene should be. Mm -hmm. The scene's only funny if it's outdoors and if it's hot and if his ex-girlfriend is there. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, and so so then I begin the rewriting process, which is really fun for me. And I find that I need to go back and forth between first draft writing and rewriting because rewriting is so much more comforting than first draft writing. If I tried to do a first draft of the entire the novel, thing, yeah. it would just be too, yeah. it would be too intimidating for me. Yeah. So then, you know, I'll, and, and, and then I'll have like 50 pages that I think are like readable. And then I'll sort of put those apart for a while. I'll, re, I'll retroactively re-outline based on what I've actually ended up reading so that I can see the outline on a big wall because I think small screens are destroying our imagination. Then I try to re-figure out, okay, so I know this is what the rough structure of Act 1. How is this going to affect Act 2? Then I re-outline Act 2, and then I go blank draft writing Act 2. I'll do that for a few weeks, and you sort of seesaw between those things. Yeah, yeah. 
that's very exciting. Oh, I wish that I... you guys could see Michael's eyes when he talks about this because it's very cool. It's very attractive. I have big eyes. They're scary. <laughs> um, what else do I want to ask you? I'm, oh, so are you going to make a movie out of this book? Because I oh think it God. should be a movie. Oh my God, me too. And I am dying. I am dying to sell this movie or like a TV series. Like yeah. I think we're really ready for our first gay teen protagonist in a TV yes. series. Um, I've sent it to both of the people that I know in Hollywood. Okay. <laughs> I hope they both like it very much. Yeah. Um, but I, it should definitely be a movie. Oh yeah, absolutely. I just sell it and save me from the not-for-profit theater. That's, <laughs> that's all I want. But you'll always direct plays, don't you think? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think so. And do you, have you done film and TV? Have you done any of that I, stuff? And I do you haven't. want to? I'm, I'm supposed to. You know, I'm knocking on wood right now. No. I'm supposed to be trailing on TV in fall, but I. I this is. I was supposed to trail twice in my life, and both times it's fallen through last minute. Mm-hmm. So I'm a little nervous about it actually happening. But I'm just going to choose to keep my fingers crossed and put good energy into the universe and to trust mm-hmm. that everything that happens is supposed to happen. Um, and especially because I think the quality of television now is so extraordinary. So good. Yeah, it's like you know, if if I were 21 now, I would probably want to be working in television because mm-hmm. I feel like the stories being told there are so exciting and so dramatic, mm-hmm. and the quality of actor is so high. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. Um, let's talk about the audiobook because that's that, that's how I consume novels is via audiobook. Oh, yeah, and because great. I'm a voiceover artist myself, how did you choose your actor? Did you did you audition him or did you just know him? Well, the the, the actor who did my audiobook is Michael mm-hmm. Chernis, and he's an extraordinary actor. Awesome. I went I went to Juilliard with him, and um, and it's a funny story. I really wanted to do the audiobook myself. And Macmillan left me audition and then mm-hmm. ultimately rejected me from the book. Mm. Even though I worked very hard on the audition because they said my voice was too deep and you sort of needed a, yeah. a higher pitched voice for YA. And this was like devastating for me. I was so upset. Yeah. But I, I sort of got over it. And I have a lot of friends who are y, um, voice, voiceover artists. Mm-hmm. And they're wonderful artists. And Macmillan recommended a lot of people who were great also. And they all had these like very clean, neutral Juilliard voices, mm. is how I think of them. And, and I listened to a bunch of them, but then I didn't actually want the book to sound like that. I think the yeah. protagonist is so discontent, and I wanted somebody who sort of had a more charactery voice. Yeah. And around the same time, I was listening to NPR, um, to This American Life, and there was a segment of this great short story about a goldfish who could grant somebody wishes, like a genie goldfish. <laughs> and the voice was so great, it's so offbeat, but knew exactly how to tell the story. And then halfway through, I was like, oh my God, that's Michael Chernis. And I haven't seen Michael in years. Mm-hmm. You know, we were um, supposed to work together on a production of The Seagull that he had to drop out of last minute. And I forgive him out of the kindness of my heart. It happened 12 <laughs> years ago. Or so, something like that. Um, but then I was like, that is Michael Chernis. And he sounded so good. And so... When I lost the audition myself, I said to McMillan, you know, I would really love Michael to do it. And, you know, Michael is sort of a fancy actor, and I think they were a little bit nervous about whether or not he could find the time to do it. But I called him up or sent him an email, and luckily his phone number or email was still the same. And he was really happy to do it, and I was so happy that he was willing to do it. And, uh, and I'm really pleased with how it's come out. It's great. At that time, I'm listening to it. I'm oh, yeah. It. So, yeah, it's, he's really, it's, it's perfect. Yeah what, yeah, what do you, what do you like about it? I like it that he does sound a little bit messy. Yeah, He doesn't yeah. sound like, like, like I'm, I'm listening to that, and I'm also listening to Game, the second book, third book of Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah, yeah. Who has an actor, I can't think of his name right now, but he says things like, Harrenhal, <laughs> you know, yeah, and he's yeah, very, yeah. you know, Emperor. like, theatrical, yeah, yeah. you know. And the book sounds very intimate to me. Um... And I just feel like he's, he's, I feel like I'm right there. I've got like the, the dinner scene, the opening yes, scene of yes, the book. Yes. The novel opens with this, um, with, uh, Alex, who's the protagonist, his parents abusing this <laughs> Poor waitress. waitress. Um, and I just got the sense of being in that, in that restaurant. Like I could hear the clattering of like, yeah. you know, spoons and things behind it, behind it. It's, he's really good at creating the world. Yeah. With his he voice. feels and like, you know, the book is written, the protagonist is in every scene mm. and, it felt to me so, it was so important for me that the voiceover artist captured the essence of the protagonist in yeah. that way. Yeah. It we, definitely sounds like first person. And yeah, sounds, yes, yes. And he sounds young enough that, that he could be, this could be maybe the 20 year old Alex exactly. going back like and the telling the story. Just a little bit just older a little than bit older. The, Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and it is, it's written in third person, but it feels like first person. Exactly. Yeah. And we, um, you know, that first scene that you're talking about for the book launch, I sort of, cut it a little bit and made it into a one act that um, mm. a bunch of actors performed. Oh, really? 
And the uh, Macmillan was sort of excited by this idea. And so now, actually, just today, I got the email right before I came here. We're doing this promotion for the book where I've taken another scene from the book between Alec and his best friend Becky mm-hmm. and made it into a little two-person scene. And we're hoping that readers will record them to create, like, little, and post on YouTube little videos of themselves doing it. And then we're offering a reward, like, like a good gift certificate, I think, to a bookstore or something. That's awesome. When's that starting? I think it's starting today. So, okay. like, I'm so how, do they, how do they find it if they want oh, to do it? Oh, my God, it's a really good question. And I'm going to... <laughs> stall as I open up my email, which will tell me the answer to your question. We will edit this, which is we are going to sound so brilliant when we're done editing this, so don't worry about that at all. Um, Here we go. So, okay, you go to macteenbooks.com backslash one man guy contest, and then from here, people will be able to learn about the contest, download the script, read the full rules, and enter. Oh my God, so our young actors out there, you guys all have to do this. Oh my God, totally. Yeah. <laughs> and it's really, you know, it's like, it is really designed in this sort of like, I, I chose the scene because it's really like, this character has just come out and it's him and his female best friend, which is, you know, probably like 90% of the social time that I spent in my 20s was yeah. with like, you know, my female best friend. I have three gay boyfriends as my, at my, my high school. Like, yeah, that, exactly. that was my high school, like, posse. Darby know? and her boys. Yes. <laughs> And so I sort of wanted, like, the, the relationship is a, a real homage, I think, to that incredibly sacred relationship between the straight woman and the gay man. Yes. And, yes. Um, and, uh, and I hope a lot of people record it. Oh, okay, we'll put, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, so last question is, I always, I always ask this. I actually have two last questions. Yeah. I always ask this to former actors. Do you ever miss acting? Oh, my, you know, I never miss acting because I was so bad <laughs> at it. And yet, in a way that makes no sense, I've lately really wanted to start acting again. Because I'm so, like, I have such a clearer sense of what an actor does now. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I'd be so interested in performing, but I'd be really interested in rehearsing. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Okay, so then what's, what's your um, advice for the young actors? So imagine there's a 15-year-old in Ohio listening to this who's deciding whether or not he or she wants to become an actor. What's your advice for that person? You know, I am, I, you know, when I go up to Syracuse, they, they always have me talk in their Wednesday labs. And so I speak to... I don't know, the two or 300 BFA students that they have there. And I think this to myself, I think, why do so many young people decide to pursue a BFA? Why is theater so important to young people? And I think most people answer that question from what they get out of theater. But if you're going to try to make a life in it, I would really encourage you to ask yourself, what do you have to give to it? What are the stories that you need to tell? What are the unique contributions that you have to make to the field? Because it is not going to serve you, so you better start serving it. That's a wonderful note to end on. (laughs) (laughs) Michael, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Darby. It's good to be here. Awesome. That's going to wrap things up for another edition of Everything Acting Podcast. Don't forget, you can support the show by buying our app. Buy our app. That's the number one thing we want you guys to do. It's not expensive. It's like five bucks. You can get it everywhere apps are sold. And then, Roz, you said you wanted to shout out a listener. Yes, I want to shout out to a longtime, long-term listener. His name is Will Belgrove, and he's been listening for years. And I ran into him at Starbucks. And he gave me such love, and he's currently starring in Divergent. And um, I was like, I read that book. Yes. That's awesome. I didn't know that. That's great news. And he has another major motion picture coming up that I'm not allowed to talk about, and he's not allowed to talk about, but it's major. And he's going to be a guest, and he's been listening to us since the beginning. So shout out, Will. Will, thank you so much for listening. We love you. All right, guys, that's it for this time. Go out there and kick some ass at your auditions. Go shake some things up. We love you, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye.